Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Catherine Parker Magyar. Before we get to Catherine, a few announcements. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com, and there you can find photos of our guests. You can find links to their social media. You can find stories from some of the guests. You can find stories from me, and you can find links to our social media. By that, I mean, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page, which is Travel Tales Podcast on Facebook. There's links to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio, and you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts, be it Spotify, maybe iHeartRadio or wherever. Just go there, listen, please subscribe, give us a like, maybe a thumbs up, maybe say a few nice things. That's always a cool thing to do. I appreciate it. If you want to write me, maybe you think you'd be right for the show or you know somebody would be right for the show, or maybe you have travel questions, maybe you want to say a few nice things. You can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, this episode was recorded on February 10th. Catherine Parker Magyar is a travel writer. She has written for many, many publications. She's New York-based, but has been spending most of the quarantine in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where I was lucky to visit this summer. And that is a beautiful place to be locked down. (laughs) Wide open spaces, beautiful, Grand Tetons, you name it, nature, awesome. But of course, she misses travel like the rest of us. She really specializes in the Caribbean. Again, not a bad place to have a specialty. So we talk about that a lot. We talk about some of her trips to the Middle East. We talk about what travel means to her and a lot of other things. I reached out to her. I was following her on Instagram. I don't know where, just through uh, following other travel writers, I think. She seemed like she'd be a good person for the show, and I was right. Her website is katherineparkermagyar.com. That's Catherine with a K. Magyar is M-A-G-Y-A-R. We'll also have links to it on our site. But I enjoyed meeting her, and I think you will too. Please enjoy my chat with the lovely and charming Catherine Parker Magyar. Are you from the East Coast originally? Yes. So I'm originally from Harding, New Jersey, which is about an hour outside of New York. And I lived in New York for um, for almost like eight or nine years before I started to do... I traveled nonstop for three years. And now in the pandemic, I am spending it out in Wyoming, which has been nice. It's the least populated state. So it's it's easier to distance out here. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I think everyone is completely, I mean, I think it's really draining. I think it's funny because as a writer, you know, I keep hearing, oh, well, this is the perfect time. But I do think that it's hard to maintain that level of creativity and productivity when every day is Groundhog Day. So yeah, no, I, I believe you. And and you, you try to look for new inspiration all the time. And it's, uh, 
It's tough. I mean, do you still have a place in the city? So I don't. And I was going to move in um, this fall or summer. I made a rule for myself that after June of 2020, that I would start to travel a little bit less because I really had some amazing experiences and got some great stories. And I was like, okay, well, I need to slow down and I'll be in New York. And, you know, half of that came true in a way that, you know, I didn't expect. It was almost like I was traveling and I knew a plague was coming because I said yes to everything. <laughs> but it didn't It didn't really make sense for me to, although I guess financially it makes sense to move into the city right now. But I'd always wanted to live out in Jackson Hole for a period of time. It's just such a different lifestyle. It's so beautiful out here. And it was almost, it almost has been like the perfect opportunity to experience, you know, what it's like to live you know, in a national park, essentially, and have pretend to be a cowboy for a little while. But so, yeah, that sounds great. Because I, um, before, but during the pandemic, this summer, I, I only taken a few road trips. Um, so I haven't flown in a year, but I did take a few road trips. So I took the summer to knock out the last two states I hadn't been to, which were Wyoming and Montana. So I what? did that and I went through wow. Jackson Hole. And so I love uh, loved it. And I camped in the Grand Tetons, National Grand Teton National Park, and went to that, uh, you know, Jackson Hole. Everything wasn't really, I didn't really get the full effect because a lot of stuff was closed. And, uh, you know, I went to that, is it Million Dollar Cowboy Bar? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, but nobody was working. There was no entertainment. There was no, you know, everybody's social distant. This was in June. Or, uh, no, this totally. was August. This is August, September. And, uh, yeah, it just wasn't, I got to go back, you know, during get the full effect. Definitely. You should go back to, you know, so that you can dance to the country music that's playing <laughs> all the time. And there's definitely a great sort of in the winter and opera scene and in the summer. Yeah. It's a super lively town, but I bet, you know, it's funny because even with the pandemic and social distancing, you still got the impact of the grand Tetons. And I feel like that is, it's funny that Wyoming, Montana were your last two states. I feel like personally, I think you saved the best for last because <laughs> I feel like of all the places in the American West, they have those vistas that you really associate when you think of like going West and like, you know, the image people have sort of from movies in the sense that there are these rolling hills and then these gigantic mountains and they have it in Colorado and Utah too and Idaho, but I feel like they're more dramatic, you know, in Yellowstone and Big Sky and Jackson. No, it was great. It was great. And I'm glad I, I went. It's just, it's so uh, low populated that work never brought me there. And it was just yeah. one of those things where it's like, well, I could probably always go. And then you put it off and you put it off and you put it off. <laughs> and totally. Then, and then now that I couldn't fly anywhere, I was like, well, now seems to be, seems to be the time. But again, it's like, until uh, everything really opens up, I'm not getting the true thing because I want to go skiing up there. And by the way, how's the snow? There's so much snow. It's amazing. So hopefully, I mean, I'm going to get my first ski days this, um, this coming, hopefully Friday and next week. And I did a story for departures on how to ski Jackson Hole this winter because a lot of these resorts have different rules. Like, you know, they, they limited the amount of passes and, but the result is that, you know, there are fewer lift lines, which is nice. They have more outdoor like offerings in terms of eating and drinking. But yeah, it's Jackson's famous for always getting so much powder. And, you know, we just had a huge skis, a huge snowstorm back east. 
So, you know, for once I felt like I was coming from New Jersey to Wyoming that looked the same in the winter. But yeah, it's constantly snowing out here. My car has already given up. I left it out here in the winter time and I'm in the process of reviving it. But yeah, for sure. Wyoming winter's in full effect. Yeah. Is um so you said you're from New Jersey. Harding, you said? Yeah, it's right next to like Morristown, Far Hills. Um, okay. Because I was going to do the old, uh, my old stand-up joke, that the hack joke that everybody does in New York when everybody says they're from New Jersey. You go, what exit? <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I love <laughs> New Jersey. Like my favorite states, I feel, I'm not even going to count New York because everyone knows, but like Wyoming, but New Jersey and Rhode Island. But New Jersey, like we, I don't know what more we can give the people. Like we've given mm-hmm. you Bruce Springsteen. We've given you Frank Sinatra. Okay. Houston. Here we go. <laughs> You're giving us Newark. Yeah, thanks. I know. Well, Newark, you know, Vogue, <laughs> as one travel story I wish I wrote, Vogue had a viral story that was called 48 Hours in Newark, New Jersey. And usually they do like, I don't know, Palm Springs or, right. you know, Millbrook or sort of like ritzy places. And it did really well because, you know, there is a lot to see. And I feel like now that international travel is, you know, not possible for most, most places and the places that it is possible, I do think that people need to really take into account, like, you know, if the vaccines here wait maybe a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but I think people are sort of opening their eyes to places in America that have been a little bit overlooked maybe. And I feel like for people who are working in travel domestically, this is an opportunity, particularly when it becomes safer to travel, but borders aren't going to reopen. I mean, it's, it's likelier that you're going to be able to go to the cowboy bar in Jackson hole and enjoy, you know, everything there is there before you're going to have a weekend in Sweden. So right. I definitely well, think there's an opportunity. Yeah. Well, my dad was from New, uh, Jersey City. Oh, cool. And my mom is from Connecticut. So I'm from East Coast. I grew up in Chicago, though. But uh, there, yeah. So a lot of my family's all East Coast people. And I lived in New York. I lived in Brooklyn for a little bit. Um, oh, cool. Before, before moving to LA. So um, I know the city pretty well. And I'm just wondering. Um, so growing up there, we'll start from the beginning. Where did. Well, we didn't tell people what you do yet. You're a travel writer, <laughs> right? You're a travel journalist. Yes, I'm a tra- yes, I'm a travel writer. Um, my stories I've written for Architectural Digest, Departures, Business Insider, Forbes, Trip Savvy, World Travel Magazine. So I write for a ton of different places. And my previous beat was really the, the Caribbean, which we can talk about, and also sort of far-flung destinations and a focus on cultural travel and you know, the Galapagos Islands or the Amazon rainforest, the Arctic. And now that travel is so much more restricted, I've been focusing a lot on the American West. And also I'm the Caribbean expert for Trip Savvy. So each month I really do several stories on like, we sort of go one island at a time. Right now we're doing Turks and Caicos. So Mm -hmm. I feel lucky that I still, that I'm still employed in these crazy times in this industry. Um, But yeah, so I'm a travel writer grew up in New Jersey. I went to grad school in the new school in New York City. And that I feel credited. I credit that a lot with sort of pivoting to writing full time because I think it can be a daunting thing going from a corporate career to, you know, I'm going to try to make it as a travel writer. So were you you in in the corporate world? I was, you know, very, I was in advertising. I went (laughs) Ah, to, I studied that a little bit in college. Yeah. So in college, I was an English major and I feel the joke is always like, oh, what are you going to do with that? You're going to teach or, and there isn't, and I'm really happy. I'm 
I'm like, well, look at me now. You know, I'm really using this. I'm writing. I'm using this degree. But when I graduated, it was 2009. And it's funny, as a millennial, I feel that everything is, people are like, oh, well, this is a once in a generation catastrophe. But now we've had so many. But thinking back all the way to 2009, <laughs> it was the financial crisis. And suddenly, you know, there were less jobs with the recession. So it was definitely like, a, okay, I got this great job in advertising. And everyone's like, obviously, you should take it. So I, and I ended up, you know, falling upward a bit and working in advertising for several years and I hated it <laughs> and I, I really didn't like it, you know, and I wasn't very good at it, but it was hard to go from sort of an infrastructure where there's a, that there's a, you know, very clear career path and health insurance. And, you know, one thing about being a freelancer and being your own boss is like, I miss, you know, waking up and going to work and having a ton of meetings and then a lunch and then maybe another meeting and you leave versus when you're your own boss, you know, there's, you really, I really get paid by the stories I write and there's less of a work-life balance, but if you like what you're doing, then it, you know, it makes up for it so much. Yeah. So, uh, you and I, I think got started in the same old school way and we worked for newspapers, right? <laughs> you yes. work for newspapers. That's how I started out of college. Really? For yeah, newspapers, I but you know, remember newspapers? I credit them. I credit my experience as a newspaper reporter so much with, you know, my career path now and the success I have now. Because writing for newspapers, you know, you've got to have. It always was drilled into me, like, what's the hook? You know, what is the you want to get? You want to? You don't have as much space, so you want to get people into your story on the first sentence. You know, make it clear why it's interesting, and then just the deadlines. You know, like the paper is going to print. So like, if you're reporting on this piece, you know, you're gonna have to have gotten traveled there, gotten all the assets and all the reporting. So, I really, I think it helped. And my first gig was writing obituaries, which was very <laughs> stressful. You know, it's the last word on someone's life. And yeah, I started out all across the newspaper industry. And I think, and I did local journalism. And now I'm, I think there's really a move to preserve. We've seen like with the election and stuff, how important informs local journalism is. So I think it's going to be interesting how that, how that transitions because you have the internet, but it doesn't, you know, AOL tried patch, but there isn't really any replacement for people, for journalists who are reporting, you know, in the areas that they live. So I'm proud of where I started and you too. Look at us now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I, I just wrote something for the Wall Street Journal uh, travel section that came out a couple of weeks ago. And oh, cool. do you know Debbie Dunn over there? I the haven't written for them, but I actually, I really love their, um, I love their travel, their travel section. I think they do such an awesome job. What was your Oh story? my God. I got it. Something in where Catherine Parker Magyard did not. I feel yes, so, wow. I feel very <laughs> special, but I hadn't you written should. it. It was just weird. Cause I hadn't written, you know, for a newspaper in 25 plus years. And it's weird to, you know, when you're going back through an editor and getting a draft and they send it back and just like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember being yes. edited. <laughs> I, oh, remember the, I, I, I remember being them edited. fact check. I remember them fact checking and things like that. Yes. But, but as for newspaper writers, you know, even for my little dinky suburban newspaper chain that I wrote for in Chicago, even then I had, I was writing sports, you know, which is not a real serious thing. But even then I had editors and fact checkers. I can just write anything and put it out there. And, yeah. and now with the internet, you can. You know, so I, yes. when people pass around quote unquote news stories, it could literally be written and quite often is by one guy in his house 
mm-hmm. and uh, people read it as if it's news. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, no, the Washington Post and this guy's site is not the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't act like they're the same kind of reporting. You know, I mean, it just isn't. I, and it's really alarming too. And I actually, I find that a lot. And I found that a lot with the travel space is that, you know, you have bloggers and influencers and there's a huge difference between when something's written for a publication and fact-checked and edited. And it just gives another level of oversight that I think is important, not just as, you know, in terms of keeping up with facts, which, you know, become a blurry concept in general. But when you're reading about a place and you're really deciding where you want to go, you want to have someone who has an informed opinion and you don't want to just be reading someone's like hot take on, I'll give an example. I was going to Dominica, which is actually one of my favorite islands in the Caribbean. I feel like it's so underrated and lesser known. And because of that, you know, there isn't, this was two years ago. So I'm, so I'm Googling, you know, Dominica travel. And one of the first things that pops up, you know, I start reading it and then I get halfway through and I was just like, not, I wasn't, I wasn't really buying what this person was selling. Do you know what I mean, I was like, mm-hmm. what is this story? And then, and then I pulled down and then I was like, okay, this is someone's blog. Then I looked at their credentials. I hadn't even been many places. And, you know, they're sort of saying Dominica's unsafe and this and that. And that is what I find can be a little bit harmful in the travel industry is you want to, is it can sort of perpetuate these sort of negative stereotypes. And I think that writing about sports, you have to have the knowledge of sports. You have to like, you know, you have to know how the game is played, you know, got to know the teams. And I think a little bit with travel too, you, I think that there needs to be sort of a baseline of knowledge there in order to, I think in order to like write comprehensively or accurately about a place you need to have I think the more places you've traveled, it helps your writing. The more places in the Caribbean you've been to, the better it's going to help you identify what makes this one island well, um, special. Well, let's talk about the Caribbean for a bit. And every time I've worked there so much for uh, cruises and yes. things, so I've seen more of the Caribbean than I've ever thought I would. And first <laughs> of all, I, we, we don't go back and forth between Caribbean and Caribbean. And people always ask me what's proper. I think they're both proper, are they not? Yes. Yeah, so like Caribbean is actually usually on most islands, some islands call it Caribbean, but most <laughs> islands, the pronunciation is Caribbean. And that's funny you say that because I've, I've been trying to, you know, I'm, I always try to remind myself to call it Caribbean because it'd be like someone just calling it like Amrica. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, that's not it. But yeah, it's funny you mentioned the cruise industry because I, I'm not, it's funny, I don't love all-inclusive resorts and I really don't love cruises, but I love the, I love the Caribbean. And I think that there's a whole element to traveling there that people aren't as aware of because I think people really do, and even Mexico, parts of Mexico and Hawaii, they associate it with, oh, I'm just going to lie on the beach, which is nice. You know, people, particularly now, if you've been quarantined in an apartment, I'm sure that sounds like heaven. But there's what I was fascinated with with traveling throughout the Caribbean is that there's it's almost like a floating continent. There's this shared history in a sense and a shared cuisine and music, but there's so many distinct and different islands that have so much to offer that are beyond maybe what you think of the one, two, three of the Bahamas. Um, maybe Bahamas, Dominican Republic, and Aruba are very popular. But then you know you go to Grenada, you go to Antigua. Um, you go to Dominica, there's just, there's so much more to the Caribbean than, than just that. Well, this is my problem with the Caribbean and I'm not counting cruises just cause I'm not a, I work them for the money, but I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I get 
why people like them, but they're just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I like to have a little more, as seasoned travelers, you and I, um, I'm sure we like to have a uh, more control of our, our itineraries and yes. how long, what we do. So I don't like everything done for me either. But my problem with the Caribbean is after a while, and you go there enough, and you can correct me on all this. I know that some of them are different, but after a while, they tend to run together. And and probably because I think culturally, they're so similar in the fact that they most of them have the same story. There were local, the Carib Indians and, and indigenous people were there for thousands of years. The Spaniards came and killed everybody. They brought slaves over to work the rubber and sugar plantations. And then for the next 200 years, all the islands were being fought over by either the Dutch, the French, the British, or the Americans. And, and they go back and forth and pass and forth. And um, the locals usually are not very wealthy and they live in tough conditions. And there's like, you know, 5% of people that own everything. And uh, so once you pull back the curtain on it, uh, you know, after the beauty and the nice weather, you kind of like, after a while you see behind the stage and you're like, ooh, this is, so that's been my problem with it. Um, And not that, and also, like you said, it was, it was a lot more appealing when I lived in Chicago and New York and froze my ass off all winter long. But Mm -hmm. then after moving to Southern California, it was just like, "Eh." now it's just humid to me. (laughs) (laughs) So so those are, those are my beefs with it. Other than that, I mean, but I'm a scuba diver and I love diving. Um, You know, a lot of the reefs are not in great shape anymore, but um, there's a lot to love. I love the warm water. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the beaches are beautiful and, and yeah, but so now you can sell me. Now you can correct me okay. all my complaints. So I like that you were able to do sort of the history of the Caribbean. I'd actually <laughs> add though, before, before, um, you know, you had the slave trade that happened in the Caribbean. You also had the Garifuna tribe, which were from West Africa that actually, <laughs> Based on historic, based on a lot of historical documents, they actually arrived in the Caribbean before before Europeans, and then a lot of them actually went to Central America. So, if you're in Belize, if you're in Guatemala and Honduras, it's fascinating. Particularly if you're in Belize and Hopkins Village, you can go to the Garifuna Cultural Center and learn so much about this entire, you know, this entire history and um, tribe of people that I personally didn't know about in school. I think for me in the Caribbean, what I find to be fascinating on a cultural level is that because a lot of these nations and island nations didn't establish sovereignty until like very recently, like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, sometimes I've been to more museum openings in the Caribbean than I've been like anywhere else in the world. Like in Dominica, for example, like I know you mentioned the Caribs and like, I think it was in 1536 or something, Spain essentially passed this law that was like, if you capture a Carib, they are your slave. So they were wiped out in Barbados and they were wiped out in Anguilla in really flat islands. But islands like Dominica, which have eight of the 13 active volcanoes in the Caribbean, it's called the Nature Islands. I would describe it truly as a mixture of New Zealand meets Kauai meets, this is going to sound crazy, but the interior is like Yellowstone with the volcanic valleys. You know, that culture survived. So I was there for like the Calinago Heritage Center. And there's still, there's still a lot to learn, I feel, in this part of the world that 
a lot of Americans were not really educated about in school. Like, I feel like I learned everything about Henry VIII's dating life. And I can mm-hmm. still give you the breakdown of like how it all went down with all the wives. And I mean, I think with the Black Lives Matter movement, this has become heightened. But, you know, what we're, lear- what we're taught about world history in school tends to be really Eurocentric. So that's just one thing that I find about the Caribbean that is more interesting to me is that, you know, the history of going to Jamaica, like the history of Slavers Bay, the history of the peaceful, basically they were, basically it was discussed, the about like the abolition of slavery was discussed in parliament in England, but it wasn't, I guess, decided upon. And that got back to Jamaica. So I think it was the day after Christmas, all of the slaves sat down in the fields to peacefully revolt. And then there was this huge, basically this huge, um, essentially mass slaughtering. It was horrible, et cetera. But just learning, I'm, I'm still fascinated hearing about that history and hearing about how things are still changing today. Because I think you touched upon this and I think this is important. I don't want to be staying in a hotel that's owned by someone who's in like, you know, Texas or Holland and all the people who work there are black and all the cab drivers are from the islands. But, you know, the people who are running the show are all white people from elsewhere. And I think that there are places that you can stay at that are not owned in that sort of, that aren't, that are more locally owned are also, and this is what I think is important is, you know, change won't happen overnight, but as these, as the, I think it's important in the tourism industry that there's the chance for there's a chance for vertical growth. You know, it's not just the owner and everyone else is sort of on the same level and it's going to be handed down. And I have seen instances where tourism, I know I mentioned the Garifuna, but I work a lot with tourism bureaus and to see places like even restaurants that are there that are spot that are being spotlighted that are owned locally, I think is important too, because I do think tourism can be a force for good in terms of improving people's lives. And then I guess that's the cultural and the tourism element. I guess when you're saying what to do, I know you mentioned you loved diving. And I mean, I was just, I actually had my 2020 resolution, which I got done, thank God, right before the shutdown was to get my diving license, which I did in Curacao. Oh, good job. But beyond scuba diving, like so many, like St. John is like 60% national park. Aruba is like, even the main island of Aruba, I think is like 70% national park. You know, there are places that you can go that are going to be much more of like an outdoor adventure trip. I know I talked about Dominica too, but Seba, for example, scariest airport to land in in the world, I think, but it's truly just a mountain. There are no beaches, you know? And so there, there's total, it totally depends upon what you want to do in the Caribbean. For me, I love the culture there. Like, I feel like I'm happiest at a fish fry. Like, I love the music. I love the cocktails. I love... I think the people usually make the place, you know, and, you know, and like in the U.S. Virgin Islands, you've got the positive is the way I live. Like in Jamaica, you've obviously got this sort of Bob Marley, but <laughs> I just find that people are so open, open and welcoming and hospitable. And if you talk to someone, you know, you can get, I have friends that I made before I was a travel writer in the Caribbean that I'm still in touch with all across. And I think that that is a huge selling point. But again, people aren't going to know that if they don't really leave their resort or they're not going to know about the cultural element if, you know, if you just stay by the beach the whole time, which is your prerogative. But I think it's a misinterpretation to think that that's all there is. No, and that's but they also suffer from the problem that they're so close to America and the majority, um, you know, of the people that go are not 
you know, someone looking for the cultural aspect and everything, uh, digging deep like you, it's mostly people getting out of crap weather and sitting on a beach and drinking as much as they can. Yeah, and, I mean, I think and that leads fun. to a certain kind of they're not digging deep, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they are, you know, they are those people. They want a warm beach and and that's in cocktails and that's it. And there's a lot of the business there that caters to them. But if you cater to that, it just kind of feeds on itself and you're going to draw in more of that kind of person. So it's not like you're going to get the, um, you know, the the backpacker that tries to go, you know, goes halfway around the world to, uh, you know, Machu Picchu or something. It's a different kind of traveler, <laughs> you know, what I mean? or, yeah. or the guy that wants to backpack through, you know, where <laughs> Africa, you know, this, yeah. is, these are a lot of people that just want to sit in the sun and do nothing, which, you know, that's, you know, there, there's a market for that too, but you got it, you know, has to balance it. If you cater too much to, led to that, then you're going to start looking like Cancun. Yeah. Well, I, I, you, you know, know, and I think Cancun exists. Or Cozumel. Yes. And Cancun, you know, at the end of the day, you know, is like a great economy drive, economic driver for Mexico. You know, they took this island that it was like not serving anyone in Mexico. They're like, we're going to make this a tourist spot. And it's really does cater to that. But I, I do think that, you know, if you, if you're in Dominica, a lot of people who visit from Dominica are German and Swiss because they're there for the hiking. So it is the benefits of the Caribbean it's close. You can book like an easy flight. It's like, because there's so many American travelers there, you know, you're not going to have as much. It's not like hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. It's an easier trip. Yeah. But so it provides opportunity because it's cheaper and easier and there is more to do beyond just lying on the beach. So yeah, totally. While you're going to draw that person, I do think that there's opportunity for more. And I think that people you know, for every person who's coming there just to lie, just to lie about, I do think that the tourism, they're trying that it is in the, the midst of a bit of a transition where there's, you know, a big focus on education about each island and what, you know, making sure it doesn't just become one all-inclusive resort, which I feel like it's really not. And I feel like the more, I don't know, I obviously love the Caribbean. So. Yeah, which, um, so let's talk about the ones that are doing it right and doing it wrong. If you, if you can look at some of the islands that are like, you know what, they're, they're handling their growth wrong in terms of like overbuilding uh, pollution and this or this or whatever, or corruption or whatever. And which ones do you see are doing a good job of it? So the places, the islands that I have really adored visiting recently. And when I say recently, you know, I think we can all acknowledge that 2020 was not a travel year. So no, I'm saying didn't like exist. 2019, yeah, it didn't exist. St. Lucia, I think, is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Um, I love mountains. Obviously, I'm in Jackson Hole. <laughs> but the Tetons, and I mean, they rhyme with the Tetons. They're another of my favorite mountains. That, but they're these beautiful green. They almost look like the Andes in the sense that they're these lush green vertical islands right on the water. And Soufrère is very vertical and you can go on, you know, I went with friends and that's another thing. People think, oh my God, like the Caribbean is only honeymoon, but I'm telling you right now as somebody who's, and I do think people go with friends. I've gone solo traveling. There's more to it than that. St. Lucia, I think is like just astoundingly beautiful. And if you want to go hiking, you want to go sailing, you want to stay in an amazing place and you want to like, honestly learn how to make chocolate. Like the history of chocolate making is huge there. St. Lucia. Antigua and is absolutely amazing. I was just recently in Antigua too. And, you know, I stayed in Carlisle Bay, but you go down to English Harbor. It's got an amazing nightlife scene. 
and a huge sailing scene. And yeah, like this sense of, you know, the local culture is just like right there, get an espresso martini at that place below Cloggy's, like just Antigua is really fun and really gorgeous. I think they do a great job. Um, I know that I touched on Dominica. I think Dominica is like the hidden gem fully of the Caribbean because I think most people don't really know anything about Dominica. And it's funny, I'll talk to people about it. They'll be like, oh, you mean Dominica? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like it's it's a different place. It's Dominica. <laughs> the coastline of Dominica, like Rousseau, looks like, honestly, like the Italian it's sort of, it, it reminds me a bit of the Amalfi Coast in Italy, which is crazy. But, you know, you've got these amazing pools that are like right on the ocean and then these glorious hotels and these like colorful, beautiful, like the architecture right up the mountain. But then you go inland, you know, the roads are not, the roads are not to be trifled with if you're a little bit scared of driving. Like it's quite, it's quite windy. I, and I took a bus in Dominica from one, I think for the port and the, but yeah. to this one beach that was on the other side of the mountain. So I would go yeah. up the mountain all the way down and yeah, it was dicey, but I do remember Dominica leaving that place going, uh, just remembering how green it was and yes. how mountainous. So I, when you said Dominica, I was like, you know, when that one stood out to me as opposed to many that kind of run together after a while, yeah, um, I, especially the ports, but that one kind of stood out to me. It was going, okay, this one's really kind of nature. I mean, there's so much nature there that that, the only called don't they call it like the green island or something? Yes, it's it's the nature island and it is it looks I mean the interior almost looks like Ireland. Like it is outrageously yeah. green, just every shade of green. And I went and they were like, Oh, we're sorry, it's not as green as it usually is because they're always dealing with hurricanes and and I was like, I can't imagine physically, I can't imagine it being greener. And I did this insane, insane hike down in the like center of the central part of the national park. That's called like, you know, one of the most challenging hikes in the Caribbean. And, you know, I walked through this volcanic valley where there was, you know, there were hot springs. And then I did a hot spring, like mud mask, essentially. I was drinking out of a leaf. I went full native, but you know, there are these like geysers everywhere. It's, it's very cool. And Grenada, um, Grenada in the Eastern Caribbean is just that place that is very under the radar. And that Grenada has like insane amounts of history because of its location where it's somewhat, where it's positioned is sort of looking in towards the rest of the island chain. So there was like huge fights over between the French and the British with that, but everything in Grenada translates to like beautiful, like all of the names of the towns, like when the French settlers arrived, they pretty much, they were like, this is the most beautiful place on earth. And I'm telling you like the wildflowers, the flora and fauna there, and then it's less touristy. So you can stay in like, an, I stayed in the Mount Cinnamon Resort in Grenada, which is on this iconic beach. And yeah, like you get the, you get, you know, what makes, you know, the Caribbean so popular is it is so gorgeous. And you've got all the, these gorgeous beaches and great resorts, but far less tourist, it's much less touristy. So I think that is also a hidden gem. I noticed you all, you didn't do any negative now, but, uh, okay. <coughs> do you, uh, do you want to yes. mention, do you want to mention Nassau or should I? Yeah. So I actually was going to mention, <laughs> I was going to mention, I don't like, I think we've gone over this. I don't really like all inclusive resorts. So if you right, do, right. you do, but for me, like the Dominican Republic, I didn't go in the Dominican Republic to the places that I think that I would have had the most fun, which is, you know, Santo Domingo and other places, but yeah, I didn't love how in the Dominican Republic, I thought that it was just, you know, acres de devoted to one all-inclusive and then another all-inclusive. And then it's sort of disheartening if you see these sprawling all-inclusives and then a really impoverished downtown. Um, 
NASA. So, okay. So I actually have had, I stayed, oh my God, what is this place called? Compass. I think it's called, oh my God, I'm not going to remember right now. I stayed actually in a really cool place in NASA, which was where the Rolling Stones recorded. And um, I was actually in the room where the Rolling Stones recorded, but I had, I've had all experiences in NASA. The first time I went was right when I graduated from high school and I did I stayed in NASA at an all-inclusive. I went to a foam party with 12 of my other best friends. <laughs> and then it's almost like I hadn't really been to NASA until I sort of went back and experienced it a different way. But yeah, I would say that NASA, p- parts of NASA are just certainly like much more, much more catered towards people who are looking to party and people who are sort of, you know, as we talked about, just sort of insert, you could almost be anywhere if you're traveling that way. It was called Compass Points is where I stayed in Nassau. And it's very cool. It seems like you stay in different little little huts, but they're not huts. They're like cool beach shacks and they're pastel colored. They're right on the, it's right on the water and it's very chic. But yeah, where I couldn't even tell you the original hotel I stayed in with friends (laughs) because, you know, it wasn't very nice and it was all about getting wasted honestly yeah. so but before we get out of the caribbean you mentioned a little bit um one that really divides a lot of people is jamaica because uh it's um physically when we talk about uh dominica it's almost very similar and that so many mountains and it's green and it's amazing you get out in the countryside but then you have this flip side of uh, of poverty and everything else and crime and and it's it really divides people. So where do you fall on Jamaica and then we'll move on. So I've got a story with Jamaica actually. So I I Jamaica, I grew up and I always wanted to go to the Caribbean, but my family was very much like okay, we are not going to sit on the beach like you know what I mean? They I was I never went growing up and I'd gone to like 40 countries. So getting myself to the Caribbean was sort of a, a goal of mine. And I was probably 20, I have no idea. It was like after college with friends. And I planned a trip to Jamaica with me and two of my friends. And I wasn't a travel writer then. So I was not on top of my documents. And I discovered that my passport was expired. And this is a longer Uh-oh. story. But I managed to get myself in and out of Jamaica. And the friends that I made, this man, Philip Linton, who I'm still in touch with, who's always, you know, giving love to my love to your mother, love to your mother, which is like a sign, which is like a sign of like camarader- camaraderie and respect in Jamaica. But I always find it so funny because he's never met my mom. But we talked like a month ago and he was the man who pretty much, you know, I had to go to the embassy to try to get a travel letter. It didn't happen. Just long story short, if I was not, if I was a Jamaican traveling in America and this happened to me, I'm sure that I would have a much more negative experience. Like it made me realize my own privilege in a way, traveling as a white girl in Jamaica. But I am obsessed with the history of that place. And like Philip essentially ended up taking us into Trenchtown. We went into Montego Bay. There's definitely, you could definitely see the shift between, you know, the, the tourist areas and the, and the local areas that are much more run down. But what I think is amazing about Jamaica and where I think it has the most potential is that I think it's such a cultural spot in the Caribbean to visit, like not just because of its musical heritage, but because of its actual historical heritage, like Slaver's Bay in Jamaica was known as the wickedest place on earth. So if you're interested in like any Caribbean history, like so much of it is there, but also like, I love Strawberry Hill Resort that are like, we talked about the Blue Mountains that are so beautiful when you land in Kingston, they're right there. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed. Round Hill Resort is probably one of my favorite resorts in all of the Caribbean. So I, I'm pulling for Jamaica. I love Jamaica. I think there's a lot it has to offer. I think the larger issue of tourism almost, you know, exacerbating inequality in the region, that's something that obviously applies to Jamaica, but I don't know. I'm, I can be hopelessly optimistic and naive in the sense that I hope that like a rising tide can lift all the boats here and that there are places and I've highlighted them in Jamaica, you know, in my writing for Chip Savvy, it's always important to me that I'm also representing places that are locally owned. And that's something that's growing too in recent years. (laughs) What do you think about Jamaica? Uh, it's the same thing. I've, I've, uh, I haven't, I've only been there a few times. And again, the first time I went was with a bunch of, you know, friend, drunken friends after college. And we were not into the cultural aspect. (laughs) We just wanted to sit around and and ride jet skis and, you know, and and act like idiots. Uh, but since then I'd only been back on, on a ship or meeting a ship or, um, stopping there in a port. And again, in a day, you don't get to see much. You do get to see a lot of the bad stuff. Yeah. And again, and, and unless you, I know it as well as you, where to go, or I follow a, a writer such as yourself, <laughs> um, I'd have to give it another shot. But yeah. the image is always there in my mind that it's like, okay, you, you stay within these places. And uh, if you leave at night, you're on your own. Uh, or yeah, you, wander, have- you wander too far off. You know, you're, um, you're, you're taking a lot of risk. Yeah. I have to say though, too, that if you're in a place and this is not just the Caribbean, like this is also true in like Alaska, if you're at a cruise port, a lot of the places where the cruise ships dock, it's almost its own village and economy into itself. Like you're going to see a lot of the same stories. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. I know that. I mean, the, yeah. but I mean, even going through this, the cities and, uh, it's tough, you know, and I've been, mm-hmm. All over the world, it's not India level poverty, but yeah. um, it's uh, it's tough to see, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, and you yeah. and you feel, you know, mm-hmm. you you don't want a heap and helping a guilt on your uh, on your vacation when you're trying to enjoy it. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to see when you're having a good time, and then you look out the window and like, oh, right, <laughs> yeah, you know. I've got to say that for. Yeah. People who are around the world, though, I have to say that my I find the kindest people in the countries I visited have been Jamaica and Jordan are the two are the countries that I feel I've experienced like the most. Well, Arabic hospitality, the hospitality level in Jordan is through the roof and insane. But I just found that, too, in Jamaica. People are just so nice. And I know we said this a couple of times, but I really feel like travel is the people that you meet and the other people. And I'm pretty outgoing and so, you know, so even before I was travel writing, I would like, you know, find my way to make friends in different places. But I found Jamaica's can be really fun if you if you do befriend a local. <laughs> well, let's get uh, now that you brought it up. Let's get to other places around the world. Yes. You, you mentioned Jordan. And was this on a writing assignment or was this on your own? So this was so my sister, you know, who should be on this podcast because she's actually been to more countries than I have. Um, but she lived in in um, Amman, Jordan, which is the capital of Jordan for like four years, four or five years. And so I'd never been to the Middle East and my mother and father and I went and visited her. Uh, I'm trying to think. How, I feel what like was she, what was she doing in Amman? So she is fluent in Arabic and she was studying like 
her, she's now getting her doctorate in um, political science, but wow. her focus is like on the Middle East. So she's studying, she was working with, she's working with Syria Direct, which works with refugees. Um, so that, that's really what she's, you know, her passion and focus in the world. And it's funny because she lived in Paris. She was working at the American embassy in Paris and was miserable, hated that was like quoting Milan Kundera, like life is elsewhere, just in the, in, in, in the dumps. And then she goes to Amman <laughs> and then she's like thriving in Jordan. And I was like, that's so weird. And she was like, Jordanian people are nicer than French people. But so, you know, I'm preparing for this trip. We're going to Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. And my sister is like, you know, she's like, okay, I just need to, cause I'm living in New York city. She's like, I need to warn you, like, you know, Jordan, you know, this is a culture of recognition. People are going to look at you when you walk down the street. You know, people are going to talk to you. And I think we talked about how I grew up outside of New York. And this is one of the most profound trips for me because you don't realize how you can have sort of subconscious or unconscious prejudice that you don't even really realize you have until you find yourself and you're the and you're in another part of the world. Like the first couple of days, you know, there were periods where, you know, I was definitely the only blondes, you know, oh, yeah. people are definitely staring at you. And this was when Homeland was so popular. So before I left, you know, and <laughs> after 9-11, there's this image of, oh, like you're going to unfriendly, you know, you're going to a place where people are going to be unfriendly. And that is just the opposite of what I experienced. And I remember after Osama bin Laden was captured, um, my sister got in a cab the next day and there were, you know, there was like British or American. She was like American. And he was like, you know, thank you. And congratulations, you know, like bin Laden, <laughs> bin Laden was bombing him on, like just the amount of, the amount of the Arabic hospitality, the amount of kindness that I received there was insane. Like I went to a DVD shop and I like was going to buy some DVDs. Jet lag is always a real thing. And I was like, okay, like picking out movies and the, and the man goes, what are your favorite movies? And I was like, okay, a river runs through it. Legends of the fall gone with the winds. And he was like, oh, you love sweeping American drama. And I'm like, yes. So yes. And, and I love Brad Pitt. Pitt. That's what you yeah, said. Yes. Brad Pitt. In the 90s. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> he gets me like 30 DVDs and he's giving them to me. And I'm like, sorry, like, and I could speak a little bit of it. I mean, by the end, I think it's important to know how to say, hi, my name's Katie. I'm from America. I love your country. Can I have, well, in Amer in Jordan, it was like, can I have some more hookah? But thank you. Bye. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm I, sorry. I don't need all these. And he was like, no, please like blah, blah, blah please take them. And he, and then he was like, your sister is Biff. And I was like, yes. And he was, Biff is the Rose of Jordan. It is a gift. Please accept. Like Aww. literally that happened everywhere. And just, I was fascinated and I'm not a huge, I'm not very religious. Like, so going to places like Bethlehem were not as meaningful to me. I, I still want to write like an, you know, the agnostics guide to Jerusalem, but I think that you have these places in your mind and then going to Palestine was just well, I went, yeah. So I did Israel and uh, I went down, I took a day trip from Elat to Petra in Jordan. But that was only, that was only my uh, Jordan experience. I never went to the capital, but I did, did get to Petra, which I found amazing. Yes. Um, Israel. Wadi Rum is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, would, I would have stayed longer. If doing it again, I would, I would stay yeah. a little longer, but. Uh, Israel, I know I stayed in, so I did a lot and I would say in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and you know, it's, it's not very big. You could see it all <laughs> in a week, yeah. you know, it's like the size of Indiana or, or Jersey really. Yeah. 
and um, I found Israel difficult. I just I, yeah, I it's and, and again, I'm not a really religious person, although half my family's Jewish, and I found yeah. it amazing on a on a historical level for sure. But yeah, you know, uh, people are like, "Were you moved?" And you're only going to be really moved if you're a believer. Whether I mean, there was all these Christians and uh, people of all faiths in there, and they were, you know, very moved. And yeah. uh, so, but unless you're, you know, unless you're into it, you're not going to be. You know, I found yeah. it all fascinating, but um, yeah. it's uh, it can be tough. But Tel Aviv was a lot more fun than. Jerusalem, I found, you know, Jerusalem's yeah. a lot more serious because they have, the, they have to be a lot more serious. Well, but Tel Aviv is a party town, man. And I tell people yeah. that, I mean, oh my God, I went to a comedy show there with some friends were doing and the late show didn't even start till like one or two in the morning. And it was, it was like, they're up all night, man. It was, like, it was, it was, it was wild. It's and funny. Per- Cause I have so many friends who went to Tel Aviv on birthright. So they, right. I never did that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a ton of where I grew up. You know, I have, I have a lot of. Oh, Jewish in New people. Jersey? You're kidding. Yes. What? what? Yeah. Are you telling me there's Jewish people in New Jersey other than my well, father and half my family? Well, you know, I have to say, though, that I found my experience with Israel to be hard because going into Palestine and seeing how, and I think, you know, people really try to abstract what's happening in in Israel and Palestine. I know it's so difficult. Oh, there's this history and it'll never be resolved. And, you know, whether you're interested in two-state solution or not, it's just hopeless. But going to Palestine, I mean, like the, the, the way that people are living is untenable and meeting people in Israel. And like my sister's best friend when she was living there is Israeli, but her parents left Israel because they're opposed to the way that is the, that the Israeli government in Palestine. And for me, seeing the separation wall seeing how big the settlements are, you know, going from Palestine into Jordan, we had an, we had an Arabic driver and I've never been more scared for my life. I, we were separated from our driver, separated from each other and our passports by these Israeli armed guards. We were technically in Palestine. Just, it's just really brought to life to me, this, like the hardship that's in that area. And like at the end of the day, like either annex Palestine and give them rights as Israeli people or let them have rights as Palestinians. But you know, and then comparing it, I just feel like there's a huge tie between my friends, American Jews and Israeli and Israeli policy. Or they're so tied together. There's a lot of loyalty, obviously, understandably, because of the Holocaust and the importance of Israel. But I find that what's actually happening in Israel is so is just so heartbreaking and crushing. And a lot of people don't see that when they're going just to Tel Aviv. And I almost feel like maybe if I just stayed in Israel, I wouldn't have seen that other part of it and it would have made it easier. And not to get uber political, but I think that traveling in that area, it does, it is a political experience in a way because you see these issues up front and it makes yeah. it hard to abstract it. Well, it kind of opened, you know, uh, traveling as it always does, it opened my eyes. I wanted to go because, you know, growing up in America, you hear about it all the time and it's such a big part of our policies. It's a big reason why a lot of the world hates us, certainly in that area. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, yes. So I was like, oh, let me check it out. Um but, you know, and then you learn a lot. And it's like, oh, I thought you guys were all on the same page here. It's like, no, there's conservatives, there's liberals, yeah. there's um, atheists, there's Christians, there's, you know, everything there. And they're fighting over the same crap. And it's yeah. <laughs> just like, but I didn't get into Palestine. I don't know how. To, so how do you get through this? I mean, I went through checkpoints, of course, and I did. It was a lot of hassle to do everything. It is a huge just to, hassle, to take a forty-five yeah. minute flight 
from Tel Aviv to a lot. It, yeah. it took like uh, over an hour of questioning and just, and I was already in the country. It was a domestic flight. Yes. You know, I wasn't even leaving or yeah. coming or going. <laughs> so everything was, everything was difficult. You know, our bus got stopped and people came on with, you know, soldiers came on with Uzis and they're checking stuff. And um, so I never went, I saw the walls of the settlements, but I never went in. How did you get in? Is that an easy thing? No, I mean, I would compare the checkpoint situation. Honestly, when I was in, um, when I was in, what's it called? Serbia, when I was going from Serbia to Bosnia forever ago, you know, and that those like that, I don't like the, we were in line in, in our car, there are open fires. There's a lot of corruption and it took forever. I would say Palestine getting into Palestine. We just drove out from Jerusalem through to the West bank and it was, I mean, our whole, our whole experience was a road trip, essentially, because we landed in Israel, went to Jerusalem, went out to Jerusalem, to Palestine, from Palestine to Jordan, Jordan, back to Palestine, back to Israel. So we, I think, you know, the way in, it wasn't difficult, like as an American tourist, you're going to get much, you're going to get questioned far less than you would if you were, you know, an era, a Palestinian reporting to work every day. Oh, so, sure, yeah. On the sense it wasn't, it wasn't as difficult, but once we were in there, I think it made a very big difference that, I mean, there are a lot of people who can speak English, but I think that having a sister who can speak Arabic really helped, obviously, if you ever have an opportunity to travel with someone who can speak the language, but I I have to travel with your sister now. Yes. Well, I just got to say, I'm willing, you know, I haven't ruled it out yet, but you know, (laughs) if she, if she's up for it, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And you know, my family loves to have like a cocktail, which I can be difficult. Oh, sold. So my sister, I'm in. Yeah. We were geniuses at finding the places that were serving wine in the middle of the day, you know, which is not always easy in a Muslim country or, uh, or, or, you know, yeah. But yeah. So we had like, when we were in um, Bethlehem, we were exploring around the West Bank. We went out to Jericho as well. You know, our driver, I went to see the separation wall, which is, you know, right through the middle of these cities and huge and written on it. It's like, you know, South Africa will never be free until Palestine is free. And just, I started to cry. And my sister was like, you know, I feel like I'm not numb to this, but she's like, I don't react like that, like that anymore because I see it all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like seeing... I went to the civil rights museum in Mississippi and I watched Mississippi burning like when I was 12 and I mentioned gone with the wind was my favorite movie. And, you know, you have this image of, you know, gone with the wind. And then I remember going to the civil rights museum in Mississippi and I, that was so upsetting and shocking. And I was crying and I was like, I felt like I was witnessing something like that happening in real time. Just going on, just, you know, people are Palestinian, they can't get degrees in math or science. You know what I mean? Like there's not, they just don't have, they don't have rights as, they don't have, they don't have human rights. Like when we went out to Jordan and I met with a bunch of, you know, we volunteered at these refugee camps for Syrian and Palestinian refugees. And a lot of people were like, they have family in Palestine that they haven't seen in 30 years. So just this, you know, and just seeing that that was the way that people were living. And then I was going to go home to America. And I mean, I started getting involved with, I mean, I volunteered with Syrian refugees when I was there. So when I came home, I did a lot of fundraising for the amount for the Amal foundation, which helps send Syrian refugees to college. But it was a trip that I came back from. And I just was like, okay, I can't, I've seen this, I can't unsee it. And I need to sort of do something, you know? Right. Well, what, um, 
other than the middle going through Uzis yeah. and settlements in the Middle East. Give me some of your yeah. other uh, crazier stories about dealing with, say, border guards or police or do you ever have to bribe anybody? Well, going. OK, so I my father collects these huge swords and he brings them home, which I think are actually a great collection. You collect them. Swords, these human swords, swords okay, from okay, different yeah. places. Oh, those are easy to travel with and carry yes. on. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, maybe don't do this and um Jordan, <laughs> but so I got so I got an engraved little machete dagger for my boyfriend at the time, and I got it engraved with John. And I was going from, you know, we were leaving Jordan to go to Palestine. And so we were in the middle of the desert, and it's literally this glass building that's the checkpoint. And I got, so my dad goes through and his sword was totally fine. I got, I went through my machete (laughs) was like confiscated. I had to go to the head of security. And so there are all these probably 18 men in the room and the main security guard like holds it up and like whips it around and goes, John, who is John? And I was like, John is my boyfriend. I'm so sorry. And he was like, John is a lucky man and just gave it back to me. (laughs) So that's wrapping up our Middle East thing. But, you know, I'm trying to think about places like that I've had those sort of experiences. Like, I mean, going to the Amazon rainforest, I did a whole journey up the Rio Negro in Brazil was like one of my best trips. Um, Kenya, China, Peru. Um, I've mentioned the times I've been in trouble. Jamaica, Turks and Caicos, I recently was without a passport. Here are some travel tips. Take a picture of your passport and save it on your phone and your camera roll because people will ask you what your passport number is. And there was a period where I had it memorized, but like I had left my passport actually in the taxi cab and now it's with my friend's mom in Queens. So I've had, she's had it for two years, but you know, I've heard of people who've like, you know, the secret to travel, you know, people lose their stuff. You know what I mean? Like my sister was without a passport in various places. And if you're nice and if you have if you have your passport number available, then you'll, they'll usually get let you get home. So that's yeah. a tip. I've also had take uh, photocopies of it um, that I keep separate with it. So if yes. you do usually, I mean, having those photocopies and to be able to pass them through a, a fence or something if need be to an embassy are good to have as well. So I always tell people to do that. So, and photocopy your, your uh, credit card numbers and things like that. IDs. That's always a good thing to have, but, uh, any, how about, uh, injuries or illnesses, food poisoning, anything? Tunisia. I was in, um, (laughs) Oh, there we go. (laughs) So I, okay. So I actually, I wrote this story. I haven't been to Greece, which is so funny. I've been to what? 64 countries and I've never been. Really? Miss I Island hasn't know, uh, been to I the know. islands? You know, I, but, I put it off forever because uh, I always thought it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, I want to go with a, a woman. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to go like, because islands, I, I know you say you, like the Caribbean, it, it's, oh, you can do it on your own, but it's, I mean, it can be tough. <laughs> Yeah, you're walking around and like Santorini is just all couples and it's just like me and finally like a few years ago I was just like you know the hell with it I'm gonna go so I went and and Santorini in particular was really couples I mean that was like total honeymoon scene but I mean it's beautiful and all but I love them but yeah yeah, I mean islands can be tough solo I've got your alternative to Santorini, which is less coupley, because I wrote this story. And well, this I went to Eos and Paros and Naxos, too. And I oh, like yeah. those. They're a lot more chill. 
Yeah. Um, and then, and then, uh, Mykonos was too like party Ibiza for me. So too Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, that was too much. <laughs> well, so I feel like people are obsessed with like, you know, the blue and white city of Santrini and city Busaid, which is on the coast of Tunisia is also a blue and white city, also super romantic and glorious, but like super under the radar. So I wrote this story for like the daily beast, you know, forget Santrini, check out city Busaid instead. It went like super viral and I got interviewed by like the Huffington Post Maghreb, the Economist Tunisia and all this stuff. But it was hilarious. It was a cool story that I spent the majority of that trip. We went to a Medina. It was like, I forget, it was right outside of this really beautiful mosque. And we went to this Medina and I got made the mistake of getting a salad. Oh. And I just spent the rest of the trip <laughs> in like the most outrageous, outrageous stomach pain to the point oh. where like... It was fine. It was the only time I've really gotten very ill while traveling. But I, I, cause I usually I'm pretty much like, like I'm not going to be super careful about not eating food or drinking water. But like that was, that was a rookie mistake. So just finding <laughs> like, you know, going into like the different, you know, Tunisian equivalent of bodegas and just buying all of the local <laughs> medicine. And, but then after a while it was like, suck it up. When is the next time you're going to be in this place? Literally, it was, yeah, that was a mess. And then China <laughs> was the first time I discovered that jet lag could feel like an actual sickness. Like I'd gone from, I went from, I just was crazy. I was, do, at one point I went from like New York, Las Vegas, Washington, Beijing, Xi'an, New York for a day, Nairobi. So I like literally, I actually oh traveled God. the world twice, but I was in China. It was like the third day. Chinese food, by the way, is my favorite food in the world. And everyone is like, oh, like, you like Chinese food in New York. It's so different in China. Well, you know, people who've been to China, I think that there can be some snobbery around travel. Like, oh, well, it's nothing like that there. I have to tell you, if you like Chinese food, like it is somewhat like that. Like there's street lo mein. <laughs> like I was eating dumplings, like the fried rice. I was at dinner and I had a hard time sitting up and I felt literally like I couldn't stand, almost like I had to throw up. And I was with some people who traveled even more than I had. And they were like, this is called jet lag. Just like go lie down. And that happened to me in Nairobi too. I haven't had it since. Cause I don't know. I probably was like, I'm not going to try to circle across the world twice in like two weeks again. But yeah, that was the only other time I've been lucky where I feel like even if I don't feel great, I just sort of try to power through. And I almost feel like it's like a hangover. Like the more credence you give it, the more, the more real yeah. it's going to be. It hits me harder coming back. Maybe because really? I'm, maybe because I'm like there when I'm in a new place, I'm excited and I'm, uh, you know my energy is different that I get there. I usually wherever I get to, I try to power through to at least the night and get on schedule. Yeah, and try to stay awake. I mean, when, even though I'm exhausted and the urge is to just like finally get into your hotel from the airport, you just want to lay down. But it's like, no, if it's still light out, I want to, you know, I'll go off, take a walk, try to stay awake as much as I can. And I usually get on track that way pretty quickly. But man, coming home, especially from Asia, yes. um, it's just, my, it takes me, it could take me a week or more to get on schedule again. It's tough. But, You're also just so overstimulated. It's almost yeah. like you need to go into a dark room and like recover. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned Africa and I had just come back. I did the... Um, the gorilla trekking last year or 2019 in uh, Uganda and Rwanda. Uh, and, it was, and it was amazing. But uh, a lot of your photos I notice are from Africa. Yes. You have a lot of safari stuff. Yes. Um, so I've done that. I've been to Kenya, Tanzania. I did go to Victoria Falls this last trip. 
Oh, cool. And Ethiopia. And I did Kilimanjaro years ago with a Kenya and Tanzania trip. But give me some of your highlights and lowlights from uh, your times in Africa. So it's funny. I was supposed to go to Uganda and Rwanda in 2019. That is like top of my list for when we can travel again. But I went to Kenya. I was on the first direct flight from um, from New York City to Nairobi. So that was like this huge direct. Deal, like not, wow. Yes, it was with Kenya Airways, and you know they Kenya had been working towards this for a really long time because you know before if you were going to Kenya, usually you people through would do sort of a layover. Exactly. <clears throat> you, yeah, I, I've go gone through Europe, like you, Senegal, yeah. Dakar. I've gone through, and mm-hmm. but it's usually some hub in Europe. Usually. Totally. And it adds on to your trip because you then you have to add in the fact that then it's like an extra four days, essentially round trip. So this was this huge deal. So I landed and, you know, I met the deputy president and he was like, welcome home. And he gave this speech and there are all these like Kenyan government officials and just tourism and just everyone on my flight was either working, you know, with Kenya Airways and the Kenya tourism, or there are just travel journalists from all over. And he was like, you know, he was telling us, he was like, you know, Queen Elizabeth became queen in Kenya. Like the last U.S. president is the son of a Kenyan man. He was like, but it doesn't matter if you're from, if you're from Asia, if you're from Australia, if you're from South America. He's like, when you, Kenya is the capital of mankind. Like when you come here, you're coming home. And I had wanted to go to Kenya for so long. And it's funny, you were like, I felt like Greece was a honeymoon. I felt like Kenya, a trip to Kenya was going to be one of those trips that either like, yeah, I was going to have to like, marry some weirdo or I was going to have to turn 50. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mar- There's this, this marry <laughs> some weirdo. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, do you know what I mean? It was like, I remember thinking, Oh God, I'm going to have to save up so much. It's so, I just felt so daunting. So this was like the trip, the number one trip of my lifetime I'd wanted to take, which is why you see so many photos from it too. But was this we an assignment from- or was this on your own? This was, this was as a writer. So this okay. was on, this was on assignment. So we went from Nairobi where I stayed in um, the Norfolk to um, Nanyuki, where Mount Kenya is, which was like so spectacular. Like we went to Old Pajeta, which has literally too many animals for the land that they have. Because most people think Kenya safari and they think, you know, I, I honestly think that the Maasai Mara is what heaven would look like. But, you know, Old Pajeta, it's like so green and so lush. And Mount Kenya, the legend around Mount Kenya, I, saw, I see it at the Mount Kenya Safari Club, is that it's where God vacationed when he wasn't in heaven which like fully, (laughs) fully checks out to me. And actually like, that's where the name, there are a lot of interpretations about where the name Kenya comes from, but like, that's part of like where the name comes from. It's called God's resting place. And then going from there out to the Mara and my, um, my safari guide, Kefa Anjiri, who like is probably one of the most iconic people I've ever met in my life. Like I was able to weasel probably because I asked so many questions, you know, I was out there up there in the front with him and it was the most, I mean, it was, I guess, going to the Galapagos Islands would be the closest I'd compare with sort of the animal seeing, seeing the natural world and being able to observe it as just a rando. Like pulling up in the Jeep and a lion just looks at you and is like, what do you want? Do you know what I mean? Like you're just another animal and like just the light there. Like I never, I felt like the sky was different. I just, and I, I felt like the Kenyan sense of humor, like is very much like making fun of each other and making fun of you. And like, all I am is self-deprecating, like, and I come from a family of six, like my siblings are, always, I mean, six, including my parents. So let's not get too crazy here. But like, you know, everyone's <laughs> always making, you know, my love language is making fun of you, is making fun of people. So I felt like I really connected with the, with the Kenyan, with the Kenyan um, guys that we had and the people that were hosting us. And I just, I can't wait to get back, but 
Yeah, I feel like that is the number one trip I've ever taken. And I feel like there's going to be an emphasis on these bucket list trips when the pandemic is over, because I think people are... It used to be, you know, I was supposed to go to Antarctica in fall of 2019. It didn't work out with timing. I think about it every other day because I'm like, when will I get there now? And like, just even like friends I talk to, obviously that aren't in the industry are like, I need to get the hell. I want like, I want to get myself to Russia. Like I've always wanted to go and you have this idea, like you and I tra- are very lucky because we've traveled a lot and we're able to do it professionally. And but that's such a, that is such a like life gift. And, you know, for us probably double, like I was just like, oh, I can go anywhere in the world. Like I'm going to be able to see what I want to see. And this is the first time, I mean, in our lifetimes, easily in a while that it's like, oh, the world isn't available to you. Like a plague can happen and you can just be stuck somewhere for well, who yeah, knows I've, how long. I, I won't take it for granted anymore. I won't yeah, do that, no, you know, and, not. but I've seen this with a lot of travel writers and bloggers and, and, and people who travel for a living. And after a while, I mean, when you describe that one around the world trip where you collapsed in China, burnout <laughs> is, a, is, is a real thing. You know, after a while, yeah. you know, you're on your fifth flight of the week and there's a delay and you're stuck in an airport. Everybody hits a wall at some point and you go... <laughs> You know what? Maybe I need to step back a little bit. Um, Certainly people who, uh, you know, it's unfair to women also who want to start a family. Uh, A lot of them, a lot of them hit that point and are like, boy, if I don't stay home, at least for a little bit, uh, having any kind of relationship is going to be, is going to be tough. So I see that in a lot of the travel industries. And, um, but what I found in, in this, I mean, I've done a good 30 years of between traveling as a comic around the U.S., traveling on my own just for pleasure or traveling through work around the world, you know, know, taking a step back was kind of (laughs) nice. You know, know, I I mean, I don't want to wish a a pandemic on anyone, but you have to look at the positives and the positives was, okay, maybe, maybe I needed to uh, slow down a little bit. Totally. Now I've been slowed. Now I'm over it. But I mean, at the first it was kind of nice. Did you find it kind of, Nice after yeah. a while. <laughs> Honestly, I found it. I found it nice, but also sort of needed in the sense that I you were talking about earlier, like when I I'd always wanted to be a travel writer, but I always wanted to be a writer first and foremost. And for me, a travel writer was like, oh, I want to become Keith Richards. I was like, how in the <laughs> hell is your like Nepal was probably one of my best trips too. And like I just didn't understand how someone got to that point where for work, they're going to Nepal for two weeks, you know, and there. And so it was the combination of the two things I love the most. And it was hard to break into. So once I did, I really capitalized, like I said, yes. And I was going full speed. And then, yeah, after like two years of really doing that, I was like, okay, in June, I'm going to need to go to travel, which probably sounds a lot to people, but once a month, I was like accountants travel once a month, Yeah, you know, except (laughs) for going to a conference, you know, maybe I'll go to Brazil. But it's hard. It was hard for me to stick by that because I'm so curious and like, I feel like there's nowhere I don't want to go. And so I felt like this forced slowdown was a reset in the sense of, okay, like when I'm going to start to travel again, I'll try to make it a little bit more, a little bit less chaotic. But when you're in the rush of it, yeah, I feel like people go until burnout. And I definitely think I was a little close to burnout. But like my next big trip, I was going to Japan to report on the Olympic, the Olympic relay. Oh. I was so excited. I know. And that is a trip that I'm like, you know, other places I hope I could still go, but like Japan for the Olympics, 
That well, was a once in a lifetime yeah. thing. Well, Japan was the one in April of last year that I had a I had a plan all booked. I had flights and everything. I was going to go up for the um, cherry blossoms, oh, and then cool. also try to go skiing in the North Island, and then go to Tokyo, go to a baseball game. I had a whole plan, and uh, yeah, then this hit. So I, that's still on my list. I'm hoping the uh, Olympics happen. You know that they they've already pushed it one year. Yeah, if it doesn't happen this year. It's not going to happen, which I feel would that would be horrible. I know, but I, um, know. I think it's going to happen in some aspect, but it, it's not going to look the same. But hey, if they can totally. pull it off, you know they're going to they're going to have to. And I love Japan. I haven't been back there in like twelve years, so I want to get back. And so, of all the places you've been, and we got to start wrapping it up here. But I mean, yes. we all have a. Uh, bucket list. So what, uh, where haven't you been that you really want to go? India, Russia, Antarctica, South Africa. Um, but really like the Antarctica, Antarctica. I don't know why I'm pronouncing the silent C. I haven't traveled it's, in a while. <laughs> Caribbean, <now>. Caribbean, Antarctica. <laughs> Caribbean, but like I have Antarctica, obviously, I think everyone sort of has that. But Russia, like I love Russian literature. And I have this image of myself like in furs on the endless step. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm like, I feel like I'd have to be smoking some sort of cigarette or like pouting. You know what I mean? Just like <laughs> I've got that and I need it. And like, I love vodka. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. I want and yeah, that, and then India, it's crazy. Like, so I was in Nepal and I went to, I was right sort of along the Indian border in Nepal and I went trekking for tigers. Talk about like that. Well, Nepal's amazing. on my list. I've been to India, but Nepal is on, is on my list. You let me know when you go to Nepal, because I have a lot of friends there who are like really involved with like that. My, me, my friend, Jack um, Edwards is a safari owner at Tiger Tops, which is like, spectacular which is yeah you're gonna go like an elephant safaris but i saw a tiger in the wild and like it's totally different than anything you can imagine pack a lot of green jack i was like okay what should i bring and he was like neutral colors so meanwhile i'm thinking okay like kenya you know you want to kind of go khaki or but i had darker stuff everyone in there was in light green and i just stood out so bring a lot of green go there (laughs) why why light green why was it what's the because it's all green you know what i mean like and particularly like with tigers like you go on these walking safaris but you know there isn't it's not obviously like it's it's so remote but you really do want it you want to blend in you want to blend in the grass and like bring a book and have they make amazing gin and tonics and you're by the river <laughs> it's spectacular and then i hiked with mountain travel nepal to pikey peak i saw no other human on this track and then when i was up at the top i was just staring across at mount everest and i did this thing called with yeti mountain home called everest for breakfast where i like rode a took a helicopter up above the kumbu icefall like stopped at base camp like had this champagne wow. breakfast looking there and so i've got the hookup for you i've got to i'll tell you everywhere you need to go that was like that was a trip that was absolutely spectacular and if you haven't been i think nepal should be top of your bucket list but yeah going to nepal i was like god i've got to get myself to india and i met like you know a couple of the people who i met in nepal were from india or on my safari, like there was an Indian family who was with us and they were just so cool. And I was like, God, I got to get there. Yeah. India is a, it's a sensory overload, much like a lot of Africa, you know, I found the, uh, it's, it's extreme in every way. You know, Mm -hmm. the cities were still the hardest. It's still the worst poverty I've ever seen, Mm -hmm. but you get out into the countryside and it's, uh, it's amazing. And there's beaches and in Goa and things like that. So it's, I mean, 
it's big. So there's a lot to see. Yeah. Uh, but again, I still haven't been to mainland China, which is on, I've been to Hong Kong and Taiwan a couple of times each, yeah. but I haven't been to mainland China. Go but to if, you, if you've seen the mass of humanity in China, you'll know what you're yes. in for in India. I you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, having a billion people in one place is um, hard. So, yes. you know, so there's a lot that comes with that, but I mean, you should definitely go. But, I know. You know, watch what you eat as well. <laughs> that's that's the only that's where I got food poisoning, and that that took me down. And I got a tough stomach. And that yeah, one, two weeks in India wiped me out. I had oh, one God. one real bad night, but oh, but no. I recovered. I recovered though. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, we got a lot to do. When do you think? I know some of the islands have been opening up in the Caribbean. Um, COVID wise to mixed results. Mm-hmm. What, what have you heard about them opening up? And we're recording this on February 10th. So as of now, where have you heard about like, what are islands doing with COVID? It really depends and varies island to island and it changes so much. It changes so often. Like I know St. Lucia is open Antigua has been open for me, from my perspective, like I'm based out in Wyoming right now and I'm planning on not traveling until the fall because I do think that I don't see I part of me like tourism is such a huge economic driver in these parts of the world. But then I also hear see the argument that's like we don't have enough hospital beds, like stop coming here and bringing COVID. But I don't know, it really depends place to place. A lot of what I'm seeing a lot of development in is on-site rapid COVID testing before you land. I mean, before you pick, before you depart the flight, before you arrive at the hotel. But I mean, the best way, honestly, the best way to look into it is to look just specific country to country procedures. And also at this time, if you're traveling, if you're looking to travel internationally, you're looking to go to the Caribbean. I think that what's going to be sort of hard about this moment is that, you know, the places that are going to be able to be the safest and provide the most, the most, the the best experience are going to be more of the luxury resorts because they are the ones that have the income and they've got the, they've got the discretionary spending for it. So I feel like that is sort of, I'm seeing a lot of interest in these private villas, which I feel like, you know, if you, if you've got the means, you know, suggest it, but I'm totally, for me where I'm at and like, I love to travel is that I feel like we are so close on the vaccine. I there's just a huge travel conference where I met with people from all over the world like a couple a week ago. And the the date I'm really hearing is September, you know, for like for Europe and Asia and stuff probably next year, like end of this year. But I do feel that for the Caribbean and Canada it's going to be earlier. So, you know, potentially for me September, um what I would recommend for people to do and this is beyond the Caribbean but look into like the price lock you can do on flights because you know a lot of these airlines are having they're just having money problems right now they're having cash flow right now you know if you i know new zealand was doing this for a while but like if you can lock in a flight to a place like new zealand that's the majority that's going to cost the most part like the most for your trip lock in flights in asia as well in hotel asia all over yeah like see if you one thing i think is smart is to lock in lock in prices for a hotel and airfare now with these rollover programs that they have. And they, again, like, unfortunately, like there isn't like a consolidated website where you can just look at what every airline is doing. But like, if you go, if you check out individual destinations you want to visit and just go to their tourism bureau homepage, 
that's going to have all of the stuff that you can do. Okay. And what about if I want to ski in Jackson Hole? Can I come up there? Yes, but here's a tri- here's a tip. If you are looking to ski, like you need, you should book your ski tickets like before your flights because a lot of ski tickets are sold out on weekends. So what I would do is I would literally go to like Jackson Hole, jhmr.com and then go to available tickets and see if you can buy a batch next to each other. You know, because usually you'd be like, okay, let me look at flights. But flights to Jackson are very cheap right now. All flights are very cheap. I mean, I've flown to Jackson. It's cost like a thousand dollars. My last flight cost like a hundred fifty bucks. So <laughs> from New York. <laughs> yep. So from New LA, York. it's probably even cheaper. Yeah, I can. Well, I, I did a one way, so I don't know. I'm sure maybe it's three hundred if you're doing round trip, but like yeah, yeah super cheap. But with all these mountains, what I would do is look into reserving your your lift tickets before you book flights. Like I've had friends who've already booked their trips to Jackson, and then you know, their trips aren't for another couple of weeks, but they're like, oh no, now I can't ski. And it's like, right, yeah, that, yeah, that's happening. Not just in Jackson and other places too. Okay. So if I wanted to do a ski trip at this point, I would probably look into March, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good Maybe idea. March. Okay. Yeah. Well, where can um, people find you on all your uh, social media and your website and everything else? Give your addresses. This is where you get all your plugs in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm on Instagram at Catherine Parker Magyar, which is just my name without the... M-A-G-Y-A-R. Yes, yes. Okay. And then my website is just www.catherineparkermagyar.com. Mm-hmm. And my Twitter is like an AOL screen name. It's KPM1231 because <laughs> Catherine Parker Magyar is too long of a handle. But yeah, those are for social. I'm really just Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, you can find all my latest stories on my website. But I also, you know, I'm also tweeting them and whatever, Instagram storying them too. So that's where you can find me. Great. Well, thank you for doing this. And also, I want to ask you uh, what you know, my favorite question to ask everybody I interview at the end. Um, what do you think all this travel around the world has has taught you about people, about the world, and what have you learned about yourself? So about people, I feel like it's taught me that people are fundamentally good. Like not to quote Tennessee Williams too much, but you know, I feel like as a, as a traveler, you, you are relying on the kindness of strangers and just the amount of times that like I've been in situations and just obviously like have had people help me out. But beyond that, just, I feel like people around the world, like they want to talk, people always want to talk about themselves. People are just as curious about, about you as you are about them. I mean, I'd have to quote Mark Twain here where he's like, travel is fatal to prejudice, hatred, prejudice, and narrow-mindedness. Like mankind can't expect to develop a charitable opinion of the world just spending his whole life in one place. And that's a paraphrase, but obviously we're all dwelling in one place now. (laughs) But that's something I hugely learned with travel. About myself, I learned that I... I feel like it's helped me like enjoy myself more. Like I've been in situations where especially traveling solo, you know, I feel like I find the humor in a lot of things. And like, I've like, it's taught me like self-confidence and like, it's taught me to, to, I've always like, I always wondered because I, I tend not to get worked up too much about like the little, sometimes I feel like I can be too laid back, but then I feel like if you keep, if you stay flexible and you keep a positive attitude, things usually do work out. So 
taught me, yeah, trust people, which is hilarious because I feel like it should teach you to like be more on edge maybe, but (laughs) (laughs) I've just learned, yeah, I've just learned, yeah, I trust people more and I I think it really builds empathy. I know we're talking about it with when you talk about travel in the Middle East and stuff, but first time I got there and I heard the call to prayer, it made made me nervous and I was like, why? And it's because of homelands. Whenever you hear the call to prayer, it was like a terrorist attack. And then by the end of my trip, I heard the call to prayer and I found it peaceful. And I think that the more you can open up your mind, I think travel just makes you realize there's just, the world is huge and you're just one little, you're just one little human in this big place. And it find that, I find that sort of sense of, hum, I find it humbling and oddly calming, you know? Yeah, so. I agree. I agree. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, stay on the line because I'm going to, I'm going to stop recording, but I'll, I'll talk to you afterwards. But uh, I appreciate you doing this and thank you for uh, spending a snowy morning in Jackson Hole talking to me. Thank you. Catherine Parker Magyar, everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs>